Welcome back to the Define the Odds podcast. Today we are grateful to have Zach Bell on as a guest. We will explore Zach's story of growing up in the Yukon to going to the Olympics for cycling. And at the end of the episode, we will hear from one of his coaches who he mentions in the podcast. Join us on this journey as we learn how he defied the odds. From what I know is like, you grew up in Watson Lake, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then, so how did you get in? Because you went from Watson Lake of probably a thousand people and you were able to go to the Olympics. Like, how how did that happen? Like, that's an insane story. I don't think anybody would have that kind of story. Uh, yeah, no, it's just the easiest way to do it, really, if I'm honest. Like, <laughs> and I actually kind of, I kind of believe that. I tell people it's where you found that all the time. Like, um, no, but uh, I mean, my path was pretty... Um, um, from my perspective, I mean, it was relatively straightforward. I, I, I you know, my dad, my dad was a phys ed teacher there and an outdoor ed teacher. And, uh, so I just kind of grew up with uh, a household that was just physically minded. You know, we just, every spare moment I had was, was doing something active and, um, you know, and, and it wasn't all structured. It was very, very dynamic, lots of different activities that were, um, you know, some, some sport, but some just just generally being out in the world and like what we call like physical literacy type activity now. Right. But it's just, uh, um, you know, climbing trees and, and, you know, chasing animals and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I wrestled was my primary focus once I got into high school, but I, I was still, um, doing, uh, you know, basketball and badminton. Um, you know, even towards the end, uh, I was doing, uh, some, some drama stuff where I was doing swing dancing with, with partners and that kind of thing. Um, uh, to keep the story relatively short, you know, that, that led to, um, going to university of Calgary as a, as a wrestler. Uh, I did two years of varsity with the, the UFC dinos. Um, and just that whole time, um, you know, I was on this path of, of wanting to go to the Olympics and it, it started with uh, a visit from an Olympian named Chris Wilson, who came probably when I was 11 years old to Watson Lake on an RCMP chartered plane to speak to the school and the wrestling program. Wow. And, um, and so he spoke to us and I, I remember thinking like, this guy's a pretty normal guy. Like he's, there's, there's nothing really weird about him. And it just made me think like, okay, well, this is like something that normal people do then. Um, and that just kind of stuck with me right through to university. And, um, you know, I, I ended up leaving the wrestling program there, um, because it was, it was clear. I was just, wasn't making the gains I'd need to, to, to kind of make the Olympic team in that sport picked up cycling as kind of a, a side thing. Uh, afterwards I'd done it touring with my dad, you know, we'd, we'd ridden to Liard hot springs and, and done it, you know, the Klondike route and that kind of thing. But, um, uh, hadn't really raced before and picked it up just to stay fit again. And, you know, ended up in the, the oval program there to, to train through the winter and then started racing. And, you know, within an, within eight to 10 months of picking it up, it was pretty obvious. I had some, some physical skill and I actually had it tested at the university lab there. Um, and had some of the professors say like, you should maybe think about doing this. So then I just kind of picked up the Olympic dream again. And it was like, well, I, maybe i can go after this so um yeah i mean that's that's it in a nutshell we can kind of go into any parts of it you want in detail i guess but yeah Yeah, no that's that's it's incredible um when you so when you were 11 and the olympian got flown in on that charter plane with the rsmp is that kind of when you decided like hey 
I just want to go to the Olympics. This is what I'm going to do. Is that, is that the kind of the moment you were thinking about it or? Yeah. I mean, that's when it switched on, you know, that's when I was like, I can, I can be an Olympian. You know, I, I would probably been exposed to by that time, like maybe one Olympics and, um, you know, that would have been, you know, probably 1990, whatever, 92 kind of era. So it was probably like right on the heels of, of, of some of the first, like really big, um, televised summer Olympics that I would have seen. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of sat down and the thing that struck me about him was like, he was small, his whole, his whole Genesis story was like very similar to where I was at. Like he was, he was a, he was an undersized kid when he was little and wrestling had kind of given him this opportunity because, you know, he couldn't play the sports up against some of the bigger guys, but because it was weight class, he had this opportunity and, um, and, but other than that, he was kind of quiet and very focused and not, not sort of your like movie bravado type sports hero. Um, and so that kind of resonated with me because I was even from a young age, like I was sort of meticulous about how I did things and, and sort of very inward looking on, on how I assessed my performances in school or whatever. It was more about what I thought about how I did than, than, um, you know, external factors all the time. Um, and he kind of had that same, same, uh, approach or let's, that's how he outlined it to us anyways. Yeah, so. no. Um, when you, so you went and uh, went to wrestling for at UFC and did you make the choice then to leave wrestling? Cause it's just like, as you say, it was just not for you. And then did you decide that I'll try cycling or just like fall in your lap? Cause like going from that, like, those are two different things entirely. That That's a, that's a unique yeah. transition. Yeah. Um, yeah, I made the choice to leave wrestling. Um, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Um, you know, I'd carried this torch uh, for the Olympics and I was going as a wrestler. Like that was the dream I had as a kid. I was going as a wrestler. And when I figured out it wasn't going to work, um, you know, it was the first really significant, uh, I guess failure I'd say in, in, in my life was like, I'm, I'm not going to go. And I remember the day I left, it was, I did a run with the team. We did these 6am runs, um, at the university and I came back, um, it was the start of my third year and, um, the coach was waiting for us outside and I like let everybody go in. And I just told them, I was like, like freaking tears running down my eyes, like I'm a grown man, like crying in front of a re- university wrestling coach, super hard situation. And I said, I, c- I can't do this anymore. Like I'm, I'm done. And he was really, he was great about it. Like, uh, I, you know, I was actually friends with those guys and attended Olympics with some of the UFC wrestling coaches, um, you know, and, and met up with him in the village, which was super cool. Uh, you know, kind of a side story, but, um, yeah, then the transition was like, um, I was a tour de France, um, fan, even when I was a wrestler. So my dad grew up with it on in the house, you know, he put it on in the house when it came on and, and we'd watch that. I didn't really know many of the other races, but also, um, you know, so we'd watch the wrestling at the Olympics track and field and then we'd watch track cycling too so um so cycling was always kind of around um in the house as kind of a participatory sport whereas the other ones were quite competitive um but uh yeah so for me it was just like ah this would be something i'd like to try and and i knew training at the university of calgary that they had a cycling program at the oval because we would run at the olympic speed skating oval in the mornings and there'd be these groups of guys on stationary trainers just like riding bikes and i remember watching them and thinking like 
these guys hurt themselves in that context more than I've seen any other athlete hurt themselves. And, um, and I, I like that. Like, I like the idea wrestling was getting hard on me because I was in a situation where the other athlete, um, you know, once you get to a certain level, the other athlete puts you in a, in a situation of pain until you do something that they want you to do. And so I was never really willing to push the, uh, the envelope that far to put somebody like on the verge of injury. And so I was always on the receiving end and cycling really appealed to me because the way you make other people hurt in cycling is by hurting yourself. And I was okay with that. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of how the psychological connection went. You know, I was like, oh, I think I can hurt myself more than just about anybody. So this might work well for me just as a, as a, a sport for enjoyment, which sounds really maniacal, but yeah. No, no. So, and I have, I have a lot of questions here now with this. I know they're not the same thing, but did you ever follow like WWF when growing up? Was that like something oh, you were interested in? God. Oh, I hated it. You hated, hated it. it? Okay. Oh, man. It was, I, I figured, I was, but like, like I was a purist, right? And I was like, this yeah. is such a, such a joke. Like, and like, and the number of times I had to answer questions about that just drove me crazy. But, um, one of the first people I met from the Calgary scene was actually one of the Hart brothers. Um, oh wow! So, so they were they were actually involved in the regular wrestling scene too. So they started in the regular wrestling scene. A lot of them were were um, you know regular amateur wrestlers, and then they went on to, or of course, be a part of the WWF at the time. But um, yeah. yeah, we we had uh, Brett the Hitman attended one of the one of the uh, provincial events that we did once, and you know because his his brother was there with his son, and yeah, I went to the wrestling camps with him and stuff. So there was kind of a connection, but I was always kind of rolling my eyes about the the whole the whole scene for sure yeah no exactly I, other people who have wrestled like more friends than anything um they're either like love it or hate it and most of the people they hate it because they like oh, yeah. wwe is so <laughs> fake and they're like well why do you think and everything goes on yeah yeah it, it's pretty good um so when you transitioned to cycling at ufc you kind of got into it and you said you were going for almost like maybe eight to ten months before it became like hey i might be good enough to make the olympics yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you, you just want to know like what sparked that light or sorry, yeah. I didn't really. No, no, that's okay. That wasn't even a question. I was just making sure I was getting it right. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So at that point at like you're 10 months removed or sorry, you're 10 months into cycling. And what was the point where you realized like, Hey, the Olympics could actually work for me for this. Cause you had just picked it up and in eight to 10 months at 20 years old, most people are like, Oh, I've been doing this for almost a year. I'll go for the Olympics. Why not? It doesn't. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the, the moment I kind of figured it might be possible was, um, I, I was always around the kinesiology department at the university of Calgary, um, you know, cause that's where the wrestling team was. And that's just kind of, when I arrived there, that was kind of home, even though it wasn't the program I was in. I just, you know, it's where the gyms were and, and that kind of thing. Um, and they have these, uh, at the time, before it was kind of pre-Facebook and everything, they have those flyers that you put up with the little numbers that you can pull off of them, you know, people selling bikes oh, yeah. and whatever, this kind of thing. And they had one, they, the kinesiology department always had these ones up for people recruiting for um, studies, for master students and PhD students and that kind of thing, different physical studies that they did at the high performance lab there, which is like one of the best high performance labs in the world. Um, and I saw one that was on a, it was a cycling based study. Like it was all going to be done on stationary bikes. And um, I was just like, well, I, 
this might be cool. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll try and, I'll try and do one of these. Like I got some spare time now. I'll, I'll try and do one of these. So I pulled it off and they brought me into the study and the study was uh, to this day, still one of the most difficult physical things I've ever done. So what they were trying to figure out was um, they were trying to figure out if a, uh, a short burst of intensity training could actually increase your cardiac output. So increase the amount of blood that your, your heart would move per stroke. And um, so what we did is we go in, uh, we do this maximal effort test every morning for, I think it was eight days. And then based on that maximal effort test, so like a MAP test or a, um, a ramp test, there's a lot of different names for it. Um, but basically you go to failure. And then based on the numbers you hit that day, you would do a series of three workouts after that, that were just designed to just ruin you. Right. And you did it every day for seven days. And, uh, and at the beginning and the end, they did this uh, measurement where they kind of injected you with this dye and then turned the lights off. It was very like, um, X-Files, but it allowed them to measure the amount of blood flow that was actually going through your heart. And, um, so on one of these maximal effort tests, um, you know, I hit some crazy number on this VO2 max test and the master student left and came back with the, the supervising professor, uh, a guy named Doc Smith, who went on to, or currently or at the time was looking out for cross country ski Canada. He also worked with cycling Canada later with me. Um, but he, he just watched, watched my test. Um, and then after the training for that day, he kind of took me aside and said, like, he's like, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a, I'm, a student. I'm a student. Like, what do you mean? What do I do? He's like, well, what's your background? Like, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a, I said, I was a wrestler and now I'm, I'm just cycling kind of for fun. And I saw this test and kind of told him the scenario. And he just was quiet for a second. He said, huh? He's like, you should do this. I'm like, the, I'm like the test, like I'm doing the test. Like I'm not going to back out of the test. He's like, no, no. He's like, you should do this. Like you should do cycling for like a living or for real or whatever. I don't know how he phrased it, but he's like, you should try and do this because he's like, I've done this. He's like, I've been doing this for 15 years and doing this kind of testing for 15 years. And he says, for your size, you have the biggest cardiac output I've ever seen. Wow. So he's like, you're, he's like, your heart moves more blood. He's like some of your other parameters, obviously, like still need training and stuff, but he's like, your heart moves a crazy amount of blood for your size. So um, that kind of, yeah, that kind of set me on thinking like, okay, like maybe I'll give this a go. And of course there was lots of other things to learn and it wasn't quite so straightforward, but it gave me the confidence to know that I had the physical engine to actually participate in the sport in a, in a real kind of serious level. Yeah. So then what, what do you do? Like you're, most people like get started at younger ages and there's like easy avenues for them or not easy, but like there's avenues they know how to go. Do you, yeah. did they put you in touch with somebody or do you just like, okay, I'm just going to start cycling. I go find some races. Like this is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. My, I mean, my entrance into the sport was like, like kind of a really bad, like national lampoons scripted thing. Like it was terrible. Like I, I went and knocked on the door of the Olympic oval program. Cause it was the only program in town that I knew was a psych quote unquote cycling program. Um, and, uh, the pr woman running the program at the time was Tanya Dubnikov, who's a Canadian Olympic track sprinter. Um, so, you know, I kind of knew who she was watching her at the Olympics. She opened the door and I said, yeah, like, this is my name. Uh, you know, I want to join the program. And she's like, oh, good, good. She's like, what kind of bike do you have? And I was like, well, I don't have a bike. <laughs> 
And uh, she, so she kind of like laughed me out of the room and she's like, yeah, man, like, like come back when you're serious. So like I went, found a bike on, on um, you know, Craigslist or something and bought this road bike and went right back to her door and knocked on it again and was like, I am back. I have a bike. She's like, yeah, but like I run the elite program. So like you're gonna have to come to the, you know, the club program. I was like, yeah, that's fine. When's the club program? So she tells me what it is. I come first day in the club program, open the door. And uh, when I open the door, it, somebody's got their bike leaning up against it. And I, I nudge the bike out and it knocks down. I, I'm going to say like probably 25 bikes in a row. Knocks like 15 people off their stationary <laughs> bikes and their rollers. And I'm just standing there like a deer in the headlights. Like I'm here for the program. Like, um, yeah. So like nobody would ride beside me for like the first year because I was constantly falling off the stationary bike and like, okay. So they must've had a nickname for you. What was your nickname? Like, Oh, it was, it was a, like, I can't remember what it was, but like one of my best friends, he was in my wedding and he was like, dude, you were just a, just a train wreck. Like he was the only guy who would ride with me. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, I, he, it was just, it was a mess. It was a mess. But like, I was, I was like pretty unfazed because, you know, like I wasn't there for, for any of them. And, um, I was just kind of always looking at the next goalpost. Like something they kind of taught us in wrestling was like, always look at the next, always look at the next streetlight, you know, when you're on a run kind of thing, like it's always the next streetlight. And for me, it was always just like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And, you know, it was categorized and, and so it was always just like, okay, if I can't do this, then I'm just going to go and practice it until I can. And that's, that was kind of the pathway. And, um once i knew i had the physical ability i knew it was just a matter of like learning the things i needed to learn yeah so you sound like you really were able to overcome like a lot of obstacles like you just took, didn't take no for an answer like you really showed a lot of resiliency like going and just keep knocking I, on the door until they start they said you were in i mean i guess so but looking back on it that's the way it looks but honestly like coming coming from like the Yukon and, and coming from the types of programming we have up there, like you, people just don't say no to you. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, true. like there's, there's always room in the program. There's always opportunity. Like you want to be on the Arctic Winter Games team? Like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, like <laughs> we'll find a spot, we'll, you know, we'll find, we'll find a sport for you. Like it works. Right. And so I think at the time it was more that really than anything, because that was my experience with sport up until that point was that it was just this insanely inclusive thing. Yeah. And, and wrestling was the first thing that hadn't really worked out for me. And so I, that to me was the anomaly and not like, not like having insane amount of opportunity and things that just work out. But like, yeah, looking back, probably that sort of, uh, you know, um, the attitude or whatever was, was definitely <laughs> sort of ingrained in me, like just as normal, like just, oh yeah, well, somebody will say yes, just keep going. So like, I, I, this on a side note, I want to find out that lady that you mentioned earlier. I want to go get her for the podcast now because I can only imagine her response when like this guy shows up for a cycling, doesn't have a bike, comes back the next day with a bike. Like I, it must have been yeah. quite entertaining. Um, yeah, Tanya would be good. Yeah, she'd be yeah, good. yeah, I'll have to track her down. Hey guys, producer Liam here. Just want to take a quick second to thank Northern Youth Abroad who were generous enough to help us start our project. They helped make an idea into a reality with their funding for Northern Youth and we are very thankful to have their support in helping us with our project. Anyways, back to the pod. Um, so you start getting in this program, you're going. When was the kind of the stage, like when you qualify for the Olympics or you were able to like, hey, I'm going to go to the Olympics. Like when, when was that point? Um, well, I mean, it didn't, it, there wasn't really like a, um, 
there wasn't like a moment when I knew I was going to go to the Olympics other than like, once you qualify, you know, you're going to go, but um, you know, I think when I really thought it was real was down the road, probably two or three, probably, probably two years down the road. Um, Tanya was actually coaching me then. So I kind of made it into her program. She was now my coach. And uh, I think Athens Olympics was on and we were watching that. And uh, I got a phone call from her and she said, what are you doing to get ready for Beijing? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, Beijing is like your Olympics. What are you doing to get ready for Beijing? And it was the first time it, it was the first time that conversation had gone from I'm getting ready for I'm, I'm getting ready to go to the Olympics to I'm getting ready to go to a Olympics, like a specific one. So it like it put a timeline on it. It made all those things that you needed to actually achieve by then, like very real. And um, so, I mean, that was kind of like when I was like, okay, there's somebody who thinks that I can go to a very specifically marked games, you know? Um, and, and so that's kind of when probably I, I decided like, okay, this is actually realistically going to happen. Cause at that point, I think I'd maybe done one national team project for a, like a small event and, and uh, I'd probably just, probably just got back from it a few weeks earlier, maybe like a month earlier. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of how that transitioned, I guess. Okay, perfect. Do you need to take a break at all and get some water or anything? Or are you still going good? I'm all right. Yeah. You're good? Okay, I'm just going to take a quick drink here. And like a... hmm. Okay, perfect. So, um, you see your career path. When you qualified for the Olympics what was the feeling that you got? Was it relief? Was it, um, you finally achieved something that you've been pushing yourself so hard for? Was it like just an overjoyous feeling? What, what, what was going through your head? Um, it was, uh, I mean, it, it was, it was weird. Like, cause it was, um, it was sort of contentious when I qualified for Beijing. So, everybody likes to think it's just like this switch and you get this letter and it's like you're on the Olympic team, but it, my experience is very rarely for any big games been quite like that because it, there's a lot of people vying for those spots and the way that the selection criteria are generally written, give associations a certain amount of leeway to be able to pick people in, in the event of, uh, I don't know, um, injury or you know things that things that might take the best player out of the game for some reason and so they they give they give coaches and 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 selectors like a a bit of wiggle room but then it also leaves the door open for um for protests like for people to be able to take it to the you know court court of arbitration or or um or the association and 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 basically protest the spot so i got selected and immediately got thrown into an arbitration to keep my spot because the criteria wasn't written super clearly as to how that spot got qualified. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it was, it was weird because I, I basically went into ju judicial mode, like right away, um, knowing I was going to have to defend the spot. Um, oh, you're the one who has to defend the spot. Well, you can hire somebody, but it's really expensive. Yeah. No. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Okay. I thought the Olympic Committee was like, since they selected no, no. you, they'd be so, like, oh, this is our guy. This is who we're rolling with. Well, sort of. So the, the, <clears throat> the yeah, so the association defends the spot, but um, 
they're really poorly organized generally. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're usually really on their heels already and just trying to keep everything, you know, sporting Canada is, is great, but it's not, um, you know, it's not super, super well backed. And so there's a lot of people wearing a lot of different hats. And um, so I had to be really, you know, studious about like why I was selected, how that, how that, and why the other person could argue that they were selected. And um, because the way my spot worked the first games was I got selected for one event, but then there was a team event. And, um, and the argument really was over which selection took precedent. Um, even though I could, I could do the team event and I, I had been doing the team event for a while. And it was one of the reasons we qualified the team event, but I was the third um, level of points getter because I walked away from the team event um, midway through the selection period because I, I felt like we didn't have a uh, as strong a, an opportunity to perform in that event as we did in my personal event. Um, so, which was, you know, it was the right decision, but the way the criteria was written, it was really gray as to whether the team event took selection took priority over the individual event. Um, and, you know, the way I won't get into the details and the way I ended up getting the decision made in my favor, but um, yeah, it wasn't, it, it was great. It was great to know that I was going, but it was also like, uh, it wasn't until that arbitration was over that I, I really felt like, okay, like I'm going. Yeah. And that was, that was probably like an eight week period. But everything I've heard so far, that's like, I wouldn't expect that story to go any other way other than you had to fight through more stuff and fight through the arbitration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Even when I was coming into the national team, it was always like, you know, I was always kind of like the second string guy until I beat, you know, which is the way it should go. But I had to beat the first string guys like multiple occasions in many different venues before. And that's what I tell athletes all the time. It's like, you know, you, you have to solve your own problems. Like you can't, there's at no point can you expect the national team or, or professional teams or anybody to just say like, okay, like you've made it. I mean, like, this is, this is how you see the very, very best in the world, like the top six in the world. Like that's the situation they're in. Everybody else is like constantly fighting for their spot. So, um, you know, if, if there's a hole in, in your training or in your preparation and you say like, well, I wasn't as fast as so-and-so because he got more opportunities. Well, that's your fault. Like figure it out. You know, if they're getting more opportunities, then find a way to get your own. Like when I wasn't getting national team programs, like I was figuring out how to fly myself to, to Europe or to Australia or to, to race the best guys, because that's what I needed to do. You know, like that's, that's how it needed to happen. And um, Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it is always, you always have to be moving forward. Otherwise you're moving backwards. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's, that's great advice. Um, so you get selected for the Olympics, you go to the Olympics, it's in Beijing. First off, what was the air quality like in Beijing? Cause I've always heard it's been bad there. I haven't been to Beijing myself. Uh, during the Olympics, it was amazing. It was fine. Yeah. Um, but we did, we did two or three test events, um, before, and most of those were insane. Like there was one, I remember one test event we did there when I was training the day before we raced and it's a 250 meter track indoor and you couldn't clearly see the other side of the indoor track. The air quality was so bad inside. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was like, it was like, uh, yeah. I mean, for people who were down here and during the forest fires, probably two years ago when it was super bad, like it was pretty much like that every day for one of the test events we were there. Wow. That must, that must be very difficult to perform well at that kind of, at this, at this, that kind of situation. 
Yeah, um, it was. Uh, but I mean, I always did well there for some reason. <laughs> like some of my best performances <laughs> were there, and I think it's I think it's because like when I was racing there, I was I was still so like um, I was still like so much like a guerrilla fighter, you know, like just sort yeah. of like on your toes and like maybe not as well trained as the other guys, but just like you know, just kind of like a bare knuckle brawler and all the other guys were like just these super well-oiled like f1 machines and then you get a little freaking smog in their engine and they would just fall apart right so um there wasn't as much of an edge to take off of me in that that point in my career so i I think that's maybe why i always did well there (laughs) so once you're in beijing you mentioned earlier you had a good story about running into your wrestling coaches in the athlete's village yeah yeah so lee verling was the coach of the women's um canadian women's team in beijing and i think in london and uh maybe even rio he's he's been part of the program for a long time but uh, uh yeah so we, i mean we were in the village and i actually looked him up like i was like hey lee like you know he was one of the most influ- he was probably one of the most influential coaches i had cycling or wrestling ever um a lot of the tools and skills that i used in cycling came from lee um you know working with him as a wrestling coach and um yeah, so I mean, I connected with him in the village. I had had lunch with him, I think, at one point, and um, you know, uh, yeah, it was just neat. It's just neat to see that sort of like coming together of Canadian sport community in that one place. You know, it's um, uh, uh, and and good to see them do well. And of course, followed the wrestlers and knew a few of them. And um, yeah, so it was it was good to see them have a good showing there and and sort of be part of that too. Yeah, and what was the athletes' village like there? Because I've heard different results from different people at different Olympics, but uh, Beijing was good. Yeah, it was a good village. Um, you know, I think uh, it was big. It was really big, and um, you know, really well equipped. And probably, yeah. I mean, I think I probably was only at one other games that I felt like the village was even more put together than than that one. And um, and and you know, I think it was just such an anticipated games in general because it was a bit out of the ordinary um for olympics that uh you know once once everybody saw it coming together and and saw the way that uh, the whole like chinese community did get behind it in the end was like amazing like the thing i remember about the the village and just the whole beijing experience in general was just like how the organizers solved everything with manpower like every other every other olympics or games i've been to it's like technological or or other sort of like innovative things to, to like solve issues like security or, 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 um, uh, you know, interpersonal relationships or tourism or whatever, you know, they, they, they have like iPads all over the city, but like Beijing, like they had in a city, of, I don't know how many million people that city is or billion or whatever it is. It's some crazy number. You could go, you could be anywhere in that city during the Olympics and you could see 15 volunteers like not in the village like anywhere in the city oh wow I've, yeah and, and they all and they all spoke english and they'd all help you out like my mom came to the olympics to watch and she lives in atlin like <laughs> you know and so she went from there and she's and she lives off grid off grid in atlin okay and she got on a plane and flew to the olympics and was able to like function in Beijing because of the way they had it set up. Like yeah. crazy. <laughs> like it was just and nothing against my mom, but it was just not it's you know, not her environment. Like we'll just say that. Like 
So and, yeah, and, and they, to, they, they made it happen. So. And to fill in for anybody that's listening that doesn't understand, what's Alan's population? 200? Ah, yeah, maybe. M- maybe? Like two, maybe yeah. 200 people in yeah. a small northern BC Roman community about an hour yeah. and a half outside Whitehorse? Exactly. To yeah. go to Beijing, which is 20 million people. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Yeah. That's I've never heard yeah. that, and that was that's that's awesome. Um, yeah. You're there. You're racing. What's like going through your mind just before you're going to race? Because you've been pushing yourself now for this. This is where your goal is. You've been dream. Like, how are you getting your mind right before you race? Or are you just like, I'm here. I'm just going to go. Like, um, I actually had a bit of a personality crisis like two days before my race. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because like what happened was like exactly what you said, like up until that point, like my goal up until that point was like, I, I get to the Olympics. Like I want to get to the Olympics. I want to be in the Olymp- on, on the Olympic team. Never, I like never really, I mean, you dream of like being a medalist, but I never up to that point had thought about um, that as the end goal. Like it would be great. And I'd obviously do everything I could to prepare to try and achieve a medal performance. But, but for me, like, it was really just like about getting there. And so like two or three days before I was like, well, like, here I am, like, this is it. Like I did it. Like I'm going to make the start line now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So then I was like, well, what's next? Like what happens now? Um, and so, I mean, I kind of had to like put that in my back pocket a little bit, but, um, it ended up just being about like, okay, well, I got nothing to lose. Like, up until that point, you always kind of had something to lose in every competition because you're trying to qualify, right? So you can't really screw it up. Um, but once I was at the games, I was like, well, I can just kind of like put it all out there and see if I can actually compete with these guys. And, uh, and so that's what I did. Like I just, I kind of took a few risks and, and threw some hard bombs and like, um, and, and at that point had the best international performance that I had to date in my career. Like I was like seventh or something. And it was like, I don't think I, I think I barely finished inside the top 10 at an Olympic event. Like I'd finished higher than that in non-Olympic events, but not in an Olympic event uh, up until that point. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was a bit of an eye opener of like, okay, like if you, you really apply yourself and, you know, kind of race to your strengths, like good things can happen. So um, yeah, that was, that's kind of how I approached my, my first event. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, so your training, what was your training regimen? Like, so if we talk with some other athletes and they're like almost year round, really focusing on stuff, like even the winter athletes, they're training in the summer in various mm-hmm. places. Like, did you get any downtime like that? Or like once the Olympics was your path, you were like, no, we're going nonstop. No, yeah. Like two weeks a year where you can do stuff. <laughs> so a um, week at Christmas maybe. And then. No, I, no, I never had a week at Christmas because the track season was always through the winter. So yeah. I always had a competition like beginning of December. And then I usually had a world cup probably in the first two weeks of January. So I'd probably have like two or three days off during Christmas, but um, no, my, my off time was usually like October. Oh wow. September, October. Um, uh, and, and cycling's weird too, because it doesn't, if you were doing track, like it doesn't really have an off season because the track steps through the winter but then you need, you need the road racing and like, you need a professional road calendar to build the fitness base that you need to be able to compete in an endurance track anyway. So uh, I'd race full time on the road during the summer, you know, 60, you know, 40 to 60 race days on the road, which isn't like a huge load for road pro. But um, when you back that up with like 
full-time track racing in the winter it was you know it was tiring but um yeah i mean it, it was every day uh you know maybe one day a week off but um but it's not the same kind of training as everybody you know as a lot of other sports do like it's not necessarily as monotonous like you're out on the road a lot of time you're you know traveling to different venues and like riding through the french mountains and like you know it's not you're not in a gymnasium every day so yeah you get to see probably amazing like you get to bike across some amazing country for sure oh yeah yeah i mean there's some of the places i've seen is just like blow my mind did you ever think because like you said you were a tour de france fan when you were younger and you watched it and stuff like that in cycling sport did you ever like contemplate like maybe trying the whole tour de france thing uh early in my career i did um and then i realized pretty quickly that not pretty quickly but like probably by the middle of my cycling career um the track the track just appealed to me quite a bit but on the road my aspirations were always more to be like a one day um kind of classics guy like once i knew the sport a bit better i, I really like things like uh uh you know i like the idea of things like Perry Roubaix and the Belgian classics and some of the hard man stuff a little bit more. Um, I got to do some of that stuff. And I mean, I did do some of the classics and semi classics on, on spider tech and champion systems, but, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just invested so much in the track that by the time I got to the point where I could take road seriously, it wasn't really going to pan out to be like a full-time pro tour road pro. Like it just, I didn't have enough time left, yeah. but um but I got to see those big events and I got to participate in them. And, um, and then as a director later, you know, I got to, I got to drive two tour de France's and five world championships and stuff. So I still got to see a lot of, oh, wow. <laughs> a lot of that cool stuff. I had no idea. Yeah. That, that must've been pretty yeah, awesome yeah. too. Yeah. So working for a women's team, I got to, got to, to drive all those, um, which is kind of more fun too. Cause you're not killing yourself and <laughs> ripping, ripping <laughs> yeah, exactly. around in fast cars and closed roads. Yeah. Um, so You've had quite the journey and quite the story. What would you tell to anybody, especially in a small rural community in like the Yukon, for example? Because Watson Lake was probably what maybe four or five hundred at most when you were growing up there, and that yeah, it was maybe like twelve hundred, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. What would you tell somebody in a small community like that that why had aspirations of being an Olympian? What would you tell them? Um, those situations give you more opportunity than just about any other situation so if you compare growing up in one of those small communities versus growing up in vancouver say um you're gonna get you're gonna get sidelined out of pretty much any sport where you're not a, a super high achiever right out of the gate um but in in the yukon uh in small communities and in the yukon specifically for one like the yukon probably has the best sport funding system I have ever seen anywhere. Like, wow. Like I've tried to raise funds for things up there and been told like, no, there's funding for that. No, there's funding for that. So like, if, <laughs> if you, if you want to do something in sport, just ask, like there's probably some sort of program that'll help you do it. Um, but then the other thing is uh, most Canadian Olympians, I would say that I've met are second and third sport um athletes um it's just the way our sports system works for some reason so you have way more opportunities to compete in a variety of different sports coming from a small community build a much better platform for um physical awareness and and physical literacy and 
things that are going to be things things that I'm not kidding were being taught to Olympians in order to help them achieve success are things that come naturally to small community athletes. So wow. be, because they've had the opportunity to compete in so many different sports and have those body awareness activities, right? Um, like, so there are far more advantages to being, especially now when you live in a world where expertise is at your fingertips, like yeah. any, any expertise deficit that you might have being in a small community is immensely available through the internet and networking and that kind of thing. So man, take advantage of the fact that like you can do all these different sports. Um, you can have the flexibility within small community schools. Um, you know, you can, you can access um, small town funding support. Like the reason I was able to do a lot of what I was able to do was because like the community got behind me, like try, try and get, try and get North Vancouver behind you. If you're a, a middle tier provincial athlete, like it's not going to happen, you know, yeah. like, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many more opportunities for, for small, small community athletes, if they're willing to pursue it. And if they're willing to just, uh, not worry, the only, the only challenge to entry are the, the sort of like, um, snide kind of like, you know, elitist kind of looks you'll get from city teams the first time you play them. You know, and you don't yeah. quite do some of the things right. But then, if you learn that stuff, you're you're going to be well on your way. Like, there's just there's just so many so many more platforms to to help kids from small communities succeed. I think that um, I, I I always tell our our sport organizations who are looking, you know, they're always looking for talent ID programs. And they want to go to the cities. I'm like, just go find some kid in like small town Saskatchewan. He's going to have way more engine any of these any of these like you know crafted city kids that you're gonna find like just just do that like and your your return on investment will be so much higher in terms of a sport program like it's yeah. crazy so obviously you're like you were a multi-sport athlete growing up and doing everything like you said and obviously you're a yep. big believer in multi-sport athlete so like you got kids now are they involved in multiple sports and are you steering them towards anything or are you just letting them just do their thing and figure it out as they go yeah. I mean, we kind of just let them do their thing. They're a little bit, they're a little bit small. I mean, we've, we've let them try stuff and, um, uh, you know, like my daughter's done gymnastics and, and cycling soccer, you know? So yeah, I mean, I guess they're, they're kind of on their way to that, but I'm, I'm very conscious of not, uh, putting sport as a lifestyle onto them. Like mm -hmm. I think it should be a part of their life, but I, I don't ever want them to feel like because I was an athlete, they need to be an athlete as a profession um, because there's a lot of drawbacks to it too. Uh, I think, um, and unless it's something you really, really want, it's a really, really difficult uh, way to go about living. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, so yeah, but I mean, I think I'm a big believer in just like active living in general. And I mean, I, I think everybody is probably, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think for kids, especially, um, most of the time, I think 99% of problems can be solved with some sort of activity. I, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great, that's a great word to wisdom. I'm I'm curious, what is your craziest story from your travels, from your experience? Like it could be from when you were like eight or nine, 10 years old, or like last week, what's the craziest story you have? Oh man. Oh, 
gosh, that's a tough one. Um, geez. It's got to be okay. Well, there's there's a few, but uh, <laughs> one little one little probably resonate with a few people, and, and they'll probably have a good context on it. Um, and it's not like that. It's not that crazy, but anyway, I'll, I'll tell you this, this one anyway. So um, one of the coolest things about my career that I I did was uh, I got to compete in two uh, World Cups in Moscow, and um and the track there is crazy you know it's like it's a gigantic track like just like you would picture like right out of you know any kind of 1980s movie like depicting like the russian sports system like basically it's like the same as the american sports system but like everything's just bigger right like the track's like 30 percent bigger and like um you know the, like the number of fans is like 30 percent more and whatever so i remember i did a race there and i got i got called for drug testing and uh and, and the whole, it was like the middle of winter and like the whole place was just like kind of shut down and dark. And like, they took me to this, um, this room where they do the drug testing and, and, uh, you know, you go through the whole thing with the, the DSO, the drug control officer. And, um, and he's like from, you know, he's from the UK or something. And, but they have a Russian doctor there who's like overseeing the whole thing. And, uh, and, you know, very atypical sort of like, Russian guy you know very like stern looking face like he's obviously like done a lot of a lot of hard work you know through his whole life kind of middle-aged and um it's one of my first big drug tests probably you know in the first few years probably only been tested five or six times before this and and I'm having like I'm having trouble I'm having trouble producing this yeah. sample right I'm like <laughs> well it's a lot of pressure there oh and you're like and the, and the the room is like this this like concrete room like down under the track it's like very i don't know it's like very eerie and kind of like this creepy creepy feeling and well sorry to interrupt here like when i was told before by other athletes it's like sometimes they make you like pull your pants down substantially and pull your shirt up so they get clear view of everything going on oh, like all, all the time all the time not sometimes yeah. like that's that's yeah so that's that's the way this happens but that's what the Russian doctor is there for, right? He's the guy who's supposed to like see everything. So, and I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like standing there, like, yeah, like pants on my, around my knees and I can't do anything. And, and then I just hear this, like hear this faucet turn on and, uh, and I turn around and like the Russian doctor's just standing there in the back of the room. And he's turned the faucet on and then he just gives me this like this very like affirming nod like he's gonna be okay now like the faucet <laughs> does it every time no words just like yeah and sure enough like i get i get the sample out and everything but i was just like this is so bizarre like this whole scene is just when 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 like the wrestler came and talked to us in like in the Yukon and said, you should go to the Olympics. Like there was no point in that book that would get written about this. Was there a chapter that had this happening in it? Like, I was like, this is not the experience that I expected from a typical like Olympic pathway. Right. But, um, but yeah, it was just, it was just, it was weird. <laughs> it, was a, yeah. it was a weird thing. Well, and speaking of a book, like you have quite the story. Have you ever thought about writing a book or getting some memoirs going or something like that? Um, 
there's not for me personally, but I'm part of a group right now that's uh, um, crafting something. Um, it's a it's a few of us, and it's kind of a Canadian cycling story. I won't let too much out of the bag, but it's uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully coming soon, and I'll I'll have some role in that. I think. Well, that'll be awesome. I'll I'll definitely have to subscribe. You'll have to let me know, and I will definitely pick it up. That'll be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for this. This was awesome. Um, I really appreciate. It. I think everybody listening is going to really appreciate your story and everything about it. So, thank you, thank you so yeah, much for your time. Hey, no problem. I appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to hearing some of the other ones you, you put up. Uh, it's going to be a going to be a good journey, I think. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm. I. You probably know. Um, we're going to do one with uh, Jeannie Lost in here soon. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So we're yeah. going to have her, and we did Daria, and then. Uh, we have some other people that aren't Olympic athletes, but they're like, they went to high, high level athletics and stuff like that. And then we're going to get, um, some more of our skiers. We're getting some younger skiers now. Cause you and, uh, Jeannie are kind of like the pioneers, you know what I mean? Totally. Setting the standard yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, we're, we're going to launch it May and I will, uh, I'll send you a link or something like that. And if you want to, yeah, check yeah. It out. you'll have to, you'll have to ask her about our closing ceremony sailor. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I'm. I'm glad. What other things are we gonna? Because we're gonna do her on Wednesday. So, what other things? Closing ceremonies together with you. What else? Is there another good tidbit for me? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that. That that'd be the big one. Um. You know, I I know she's got some other stories, but that was the one where we like, you know, we'd always kind of overlapped in in text, right? Like in yeah. you know in the headlines and stuff, but we we're never really training in the same place. But at the Olympics, the closing ceremonies, we found each other and uh, and uh, yeah, we did uh, we did something fun. <laughs> yeah you have to have to ask her about that okay thanks for the heads up because uh yeah, yeah. yeah i mean we might have missed it otherwise. awesome okay yeah thank you so right. much hello hi tanya basically i'll just ask you a few questions about stuff it shouldn't take too long um zach only kind of brought up he's like because we're like how did you get into cycling and he basically was well i'm 20 years old i was just finishing wrestling i was just and i saw i saw cycling i just was gonna give it a try and he said he showed up to your uh, to the uh, the place to start, and you were kind of the first yeah. person he met. And he didn't have a bike. Yeah. yeah. So, what was your thought when somebody's showing up here to try and do cycling without a bike? Oh well, I think you. It's my job to sort of you know help steer and recognize determination. And so, if someone doesn't have a bike, that doesn't mean they're not going to get one. So, uh, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, okay, just get yourself a bike and then show up. And so he got himself a bike and yeah. he showed up and that was it. And it's like, okay, here's your group. You ride with them five times a week in between your wrestling practice. And then in, within the summer, he went from cat five to, uh, to being cat one, two, three. Wow. Yeah. Like he, uh, he was much more modest than that, but. Was there, uh -huh. yeah. was yeah. there any chance when he, for, like, has anyone else ever shown up without a bike? No, 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 I don't think any, but it's not surprising. Like, yeah, yeah but no, you're like, nobody showed up ever without a bike. <laughs> and he was just more interested. I, I want to do this. It's like, great. And then, um, so he said he came back like the next day with a bike. He just went and found some bike on like Kijiji or, uh, some yeah. thing and just showed back up with a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, what was, do you have any lasting memories of Zach, um, of his experience in her time? Cause 
Um, he's kind of has such an unusual story. Um, well, it's almost, you know, the, the ones that, that are successful are the ones that have a unique story. And so I think that's what's funny is that, you know, all cyclists have a unique story. So the unique story is just commonplace. You know, one person might start in a different discipline or, and then as you recognize as cyclists, um, not get older, but as, as they sort of mature and their stories become more well-known, you realize that their stories are very similar in their uniqueness. And uh, I, I remember this one uh, couple of seasons, um, you know, the, the French, the, the Quebec team was always the Quebec, always the team to beat. And there was nationals in Calgary one year and, and, and Zach won and we put a team pursuit together and we beat and we beat, um, you know, Team Quebec. And so that was sort of a big milestone of, of success in terms of the national scene. And then the following year, nationals were in uh, were in Dieppe. And uh, he crashed. And, um, you know, all cyclists usually have this sort of crash that they sort of earn their stripes on. And, and so he crashed and had to take him to the hospital. And lying there a lot of pain. I can't remember it was just it was a collarbone or hip or something. And then the the nurse came in and she was chatting and and then she mentioned something like, Oh, you, you know, your wife and I'm we looked at each other and it's like, No, no, I'm the coach. And it was just this funny little thing. It's like, no. And so I think, you know, when you you know, it takes, you know, twenty years to look back and say, you know, for someone to, you know, have that sense of like oh, these two people sort of care about each other and, you know, in a sort of a loving way in a sense that I'm caring for this athlete and I just want the best for this athlete. And someone recognized that as like sort of this, this relationship, but it that wasn't the relationship. It was just a caring relationship and, and easygoing, fluid conversation. And so I think that was sort of the special was that it was a, it was a really good relationship and it was just so great to see Zach move on and go on to so many great things. And I was able to, you know, connect with him along the way you know, whether it was the Olympics, whether it was the world championships uh, on the track and just being able to see him, you know, gain that success. Um, it's been, it's been fantastic. Yeah, no, um, that that's awesome. Was there another moment besides the one you just shared that uh, really reminds you of Zach or sticks in your mind or it was a really good experience you had with Zach? Um, yeah, I think the, the, you know, one of the beauties of, you know, Zach is that he'd always sort of come back with these um, very interesting, but yet whimsical, um, you know, stories or, you know, perspectives that to like, to, to like kind of get over yourself. And there'd always be, you know, some sort of story about the Yukon or, or, you know, sort of toughen up because, you know, when we were in the Yukon, this is what we did. And there was just sort of this commonplace of, of, uh, of, of, you know, his, his sort of humor that, um, you know, would sort of, you know, stop the, the, the room or the group of athletes from sort of complaining or whatever, whatever the situation was, he'd always, you know, say something and it would just sort of crack everybody up and snap everybody out of their funk. And, and that was always a, a great part of having Zach around. Yeah. I hadn't met Zach before we did the podcast and, um, I have to say he was quite hysterical. Like he's, he's a very funny yeah. guy. And, uh, mm-hmm. He just, he had uh, me and my producer laughing the entire time. It was really good. Awesome. Um, thank Tanya. So thank you so much for your time. We don't want to take right. any more of your time. Good and luck. Have yeah, yourself no a wonderful worries. day. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.